0: The National Archives podcast series, Railway Staff Records, presented by Bruno Derrick. Thank you all for turning up, and this afternoon I'd like to talk about all the records we've got here at the National Archives relating to railways. Now we get many questions asked about railways and um, railway technology and overseas railways, etc., but mostly uh, questions are asked about um, ancestors who worked on the railways. So, it's railway genealogy, basically. And so, that's what my talk is going to be based around this afternoon. And of course, you know, people can work on railways all over England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. And before I start, I mean, it's sort of worth bearing in mind the enormous impact the railways had when they first came along in the um, 1820s, 1830s. Before that, people could often lead, lead sort of fairly static lives and it would be often stuck in their communities or sometimes migrate 10,000 miles forcibly or not to Australia, whatever. But as a rule, they they often stayed in their locality. Uh, When the railways came along, that of course allowed much easier movement of access around the country. And quite a few people weren't too happy about that at the time. Um, The the Duke of Wellington was was asked about it and someone said, isn't it a good, good idea, your grace, that people can move easily from A to B? And he said, "No, it's not. They've got no business moving from A to B. They should stay where they are, because you know, they <laughs> <laughs> they're messing around other people's business or travelling around. So they should." Uh, so he, he saw it as being potentially subversive. I don't know where it really was, but the uh, so from the um, from the very first railways onwards until nationalisation in 1947, we have got a very good and extensive collection of staff records. Now, some people can come here expecting to find a lot of information about their ancestors and the railways, and they don't find a great deal, to be honest. Other times, they, they perhaps come with fairly low expectations and find an enormous amount. So it really depends. There's it an element of luck in there, in here, really. Partly depends on what records were preserved and what information was recorded at the time. But uh, I would take it you're all railway enthusiasts or... Perhaps we've got ancestors who worked on the railway. And that is a, a steam train, as you can probably guess. Um, now, it's actually a document image here. It's in the, rail, the series Rail 1014. Broad-gauge locomotive, dating from the 1880s, photographed by the ra- Reverend A.H. Milan. And that may be the start of the rather sort of curious connection between clergymen and railways, because if you remember... Thomas the Tank Engine stories are written by the Reverend Audrey. That was a bit later. Um, and that image itself can be downloaded via our website. Uh, the, was it, if you go to the, on our website, there's a section called Shop Online, and underneath that is an image library. You've got images of huge range of different records. And under the transport section, you've got various images of railways, uh, underground trains, and various um, pictures connected with railways and transport. And that's the leaflet you've got in front of you now, or most you should have in front of you, domestic leaflet number 82, which again can be downloaded from our website. And it's pretty good. It lists, um, well, gives basic information about what sort of records we have got and the salary registers, et cetera, railway staff overseas. And at the end, it um, lists, which is, I think, particularly important, the the records we've got for all the different railway companies from the early days of the railways, mainly up until 1922. Well, I'll come on to this later on, but in 1922, there was an amalgamation of all the railway companies, and that led to the creation of the Big Four, which really was a precursor to nationalisation in 1947. But before 1922, there was a huge number of different railway companies Often built by sort of eccentrics or people who wanted a railway line connecting their house to their office if if they had the money to build it. And people were setting up companies all over the place, and sometimes they'd go, they'd be be bankrupted or merged with other companies as well. And later on, some of these lines were merged into British Railways after 1947. But before 1942, it was, was, um, well, (laughs) you could make money out of railways, you could very easily lose money as well. But, as I said, at the end, there's a list of all the railway companies, the Barry Railway, Birkenhead Railway, etc., Great North of England Railway, <laughs> Furness Railway, t- some tiny little companies. And at the, after that, I think something which you might find quite useful is um, a list of all the different trades and occupations you could have on the railways. Yeah, accountants, asphalters, blacksmiths, brass finishers, busmen deliverers, drain men, uh, laboratory attendants as well, which was um, quite, occurs more than once actually, I don't know why I the that. But yeah. And of course clerks as well. Uh, a clerk would have been a salary position within the railways and that was quite a highly sought after job. So I do recommend you hold on to that leaflet or if you lose it or give it to a friend of yours, you can always download another copy or look at another copy from our website. If I mention a few books to you, um, this is um, always worth consulting. We've got at least two or three copies here at Kew. Railway Ancestors by David Hawkins. Very nicely illustrated. Some very good examples in here. Case histories, accidents, reports, you name it. Uh, It's a very comprehensive guide. And he is going to be updating it fairly soon, I've been told but I haven't been given a date as to when that will occur. So, at the moment, there's nothing wrong with this book. It's still a fairly accurate and comprehensive guide. The, if you want a slightly less forcible, comprehensive guide to railways and railway staff records, then good old Tracing Your Ancestors in the National Archives by my colleague, Amanda Bevin. I mean, that's worth having a look at. And, of course, online, uh, you'll, you'll find a huge number of... Uh, different websites connected with railways or different railway companies or different branch lines and I suppose it would be rather invidious of me to mention them as well. Similarly there's a huge number of books that have been published on different matters of railways and uh, matters connected with railway history. But I thought I'd mention one book which did come out last year which was pretty well received called Fire and Steam, A New History of the Railways in Britain and that can be consulted here at Kew and it's a fairly small, it's 300-odd pages, so it <laughs> is small considering the subject matter it covers, but it's a good comprehensive uh, guide to the railways from the days of Robert, L- Robert Stevenson and the rocket right up to the opening of um, Euro- Eurotunnel Connection between King's Cross and Paris last year. Oh, sorry, Christian Walmer. Uh, so you can look at it here. Uh, I don't know if it's out on paperback yet, but it might be fairly soon. The, another book is, again, written by a colleague of mine, Royal Records, A Guide to Sources by Cliff, Cliff Edwards. Again, worth consulting. Uh, was Your Grandfather a Railwayman? As I said, there's, 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 there's scores of different publications. That's a pretty good basic guide, and it tells you all the sources to contact consult. Now, I thought I'd mention, well, uh, difficulties, I said, but I, uh, I, I mean, describe it as a challenge instead, if you like. Um... Railway records aren't always easy to work with to be honest Um, and there could be a number of reasons for this but the main reasons I think are as follows. The information available on an individual employee is often negligible. I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago but this is not always the case. See for example the amount of information on the careers of Gripless and Railway clerks in the series Rail 264. That's just one example so sometimes it's negligible, sometimes it's not but you, you, if you approach it, perhaps, in a sort of slightly pessimistic frame of mind, you might be surprised what you can find. Railway staff records are arranged according to the names of the railway companies or their successor companies. Researchers often do not have this information. And it really is important, especially before 1922, but in practice before 1947 nationalisation, that you know the name of the company. Often it will just be a, a family story or a legend that an ancestor works on the railways. So, if you can find any way of sort of vouchsafing that information, it would be a lot easier. So, perhaps referring to things like family bibles or, family or diaries, or, or sometimes like marriage certificates, birth certificates, death certificates, will actually say someone was a railway employee and will name the company they work for as well. If you don't have the name of the company, it does make it rather more difficult. Staff registers are divided up according to occupation, and researchers are often are not clear what jobs their ancestors had when they worked on the railways. I mean, a lot of people like, to say, my ancestors and on the Flying Scotsman, a driver on the Flying Scotsman, which sounds like a fairly glamorous job to have. But a lot of them possibly <laughs> were working in more sort of humble jobs, on, perhaps on the Flying Scotsman or on another railway. But if, if, they, if they're quite sure they were drivers or cleaners or engineers, then their, their job is quite e- will be a lot easier. But often people do not have this information. Now, staff employed in the railways work in these five different major areas in the locomotive carriage and wagon department, in the electrical engineer's department, in the traffic stock department, and the staff who are on a weekly basis and staff who are in salaried clerical positions. And as I said, the, uh, the clerical positions were sort of fairly uh, well sought after. Another way of finding information possibly on an ancestor or confirmation that someone works on the railways is to go to the census returns. And here we've got the, censor, the household of Richard Jones, a railway en- engine stoker. He was born in Paddington, resident at Albany Place in Islington. So he was born in Paddington, which might suggest that he had uh, some connection with the Great Western Railway. Um, of course, by um, 1901, he was living in Islington, which might suggest he transferred his allegiance to the London and Northeastern. But you can never be quite sure of that the fact that someone lived near a major railway termini doesn't indicate that they necessarily worked for the company whose trains stopped there. Although, to be fair, it often is a good indicator, but you can't be sure that it is going to um, be the case. So, but there they you get the household of Richard Jones. He, lives next, he lived next door to another railway goods checker, William Connell. So, and, you, and you will find quite a few railway staff, members of railway staff, living close to one another in in particular areas. And I'd say there might be a connection with the railway companies, but you can't always be sure of that. When looking for a person who works in the railway, it's very useful to know the name of the company, uh, the the name of the railway company who employed him. I say him, because it was mostly men, but there were women as well, but it was mostly men. The date of birth, death, or time of employment, doesn't have to be exact, you know, um, uh, approximate period of time would be adequate, I think. The place of residence or employment, where they lived, the type of work undertaken. Without these details, searches can still be carried out, but such searches are more likely to be speculative. Now, as I said, the, um, there was a sort of semi-nationalization in 1922, which led to the creation of the, the big four, the Great Western Railway, the London Midland and the Scottish Railway, the London and North Eastern Railway, LNER, and the Southern Railway. I thought I'd talk a bit about the Great Western Railway, partly because it's one of those companies which people, who people think their ancestors worked for. And quite often they did, because it was a, a very big royal company, obviously associated with Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And this year it celebrates its 175th anniversary. I'm just giving you examples of the sort of records you can find by, for example, going to Rail 264. In Rail 264 pieces number 1 to 9, there are registers of clerks employed by the company. These records have been partially catalogued and this is the information they record. So, for example, you get William Wood, His age of joining as clerk, not stated sadly, but uh, the date of entry into the company, 1835, obviously very early, his last date of salary increase, and then calls end of service when it's stated. Uh, sometimes it is stated, sometimes it isn't. Quite often you see like this chap, John Bishop, he resigned in May 1858. You're getting a lot of people who are, um, who are dismissed some of them died while in service. So that would be confirmation that someone did work on the GWR at a particular period of time. Although these records are only partially catalogued at present, you can, if you think you have an ancestor who worked as a clerk on the railways, just search under the name and certainly if it's a fairly common name, narrow the search down to rail 264 because rail 264 is wholly concerned with staff records of the Great Western Railway. And These are what what the registers of clerks look like. So you get the name there, uh, date of entry in the company, in which department they worked at, the stations they were employed at, Is at Paddington, places you'd expect them to be, really. Later on, you see some sort of Swindon, Reading, Oxford. I think South Wales was added to the Great Western a bit later on in the 20th century. And the entries in this particular record are split across two sides, and then you're getting um, details of why they left. The truck was considered supernumerary, <coughs> but in his particular case, the details were entered in error. So, if you had an ancestor who thought he had joined the Great Western Railway but it turned out that he hadn't, maybe he'll be up on here, but <laughs> that's not very likely. But the other ones you see underneath, you've got the uh, dates of when they resigned. Continuing in Rail 264, between 80 pieces, number 80 to 133, you find registers of drivers and firemen showing dates of entering service, promotions, types of work, fines, levied, etc. So if you're looking for a you could possibly put his name in, maybe narrow the search down to rail 264 stroke 20, for example. And also, rail 264 is a a register of weekly staff, between pieces number 415 to 427. Staffing records for the main railway companies, and I mentioned them just now. Great Western Railway isn't, well, rail 264, but you find... uh, records which relate to the Great Western, elsewhere as well. Um, but obviously if you're going to be looking at staffing records for the GWR, you should initially concentrate on rail 264. London North Eastern Railway, mainly three, rail 397 and rail 390. And these are records which are wholly or largely concerned with staff, and staffing matters and staff appointments. London North Western Railway, well, rail 410. London, Midland, the Scottish, mainly rail 426, but also rail 421 and rail 1015. And the Southern Railway, which only came into existence in 1923, um, rail 651. And to be honest, I haven't found a great deal on staffing matters in, in those records. Staffing records for the smaller railway companies. So the, the leaflet you've got lists the records you've got for all the railway companies, big and small. Uh, I've got an example here the Barry Railway Company in South Wales, Rail 23. And this, this actually is a, is a woman. Uh, it's a history of Miss Catherine Jane, Jane Harris, born on the 3rd of May, 1900, who entered the service on the 13th of August, 1915, when she was only just 15 years old, working in the accountant's office, and details of the pay she received. Now, I suppose it's possible there, because they were recruiting more women during the First World War, that is why she was appointed, well she was very young, 15 years old, but they did obviously more women working in doing the First World War on railways than perhaps had beforehand. Staying with the Barry Railway Company, this is what, this is what a register of firemen looks like. They give details of name, date into service, occupation, age when made firemen, dates of attaining different grades and remarks including names of stations at which based, and information on departure from service. For example, you can see W. Jones, who went to the service on 5th of May 1903 as a cleaner and became a fireman, spare, or a spare pilot fireman on the 13th of August 1906. This is partly what I was talking about earlier on. The, the amount of information is fairly sparse, but it does lead on to other records, other railway staff records, especially if they joined another company, but also can the, it does relate, for example, to things like census returns possibly. And other records and I'll mention an example of that in a minute. Rail 214 another rather small company the Furness Railway Company and here we see these staff records of Barrow Station and these records are called the name of members of staff, their ages, whether they're married or single, their occupations on the railways, the, their weekly pay, the date they entered service, defaults, that would be uh, or sometimes it would be disciplinary matters, although it isn't in this particular example here, and remarks relating to their service. Rail 456, stroke 13, the Manchester Milford Railway. A wages pay sheet for the fortnight ending October 11th, 1873. Again, 1873, quite close to the 1871 census. These are the staff here employed in the traffic department. Again, showing their rates of pay, uh, which stations are attached to. Well, it's come out reasonably well. A oh, lot the records aren't generally going to have many photographs in them of individual staff who were employed by the railways, yeah, but they, they do occasionally. And here we've got a chap called Alfred Tatlow, and it gives. And this is in Rail 1156, and he entered the railways in 1883, uh, 1928. So it's 45 years. And of course, he was working for the railways in the golden age of the moustache, wasn't he? So, the, um, and that's a, he looks like he looks rather well good there with his bow tie. Uh, he obviously is sort of fairly high up, um, but then you get an account of his career. Entered the service of the Midland Railway as a clerk at St Mary's, Derby, on 26 February 1883, and six years later was transferred to the General Manager's Office. He sort of worked his way up. In 1901, was appointed as Chief of New Works and Joint Lines Section of the General Manager's Office. Office, et etc., etc., and they recalled all his subsequent promotions. And There's a nice, well, a nice picture there, which I, mean, <coughs> I, I, I presume he left. He was given some sort of um uh, present or whatever, but the <laughs> they don't mention what that was. But the uh, but that, that does you wouldn't for the average member staff get that sort of level of information. But Rail 1014 is quite good for someone who was fairly high up in the railways. Coming close to home, or literally, literally home, like the, the North London Railway, which of course is still in existence under another name now, their records are often incredibly, uh, well, uh, not verbose, but they give a, a large amount of information. Uh, I couldn't get any copy because they're being uh, copied by someone else at the moment, I'm afraid, but the, the actual catalogue itself does give a good idea of the sort of information they contain. So you get details of employee, their names, their positions, their previous occupations, positions, schools attended, etc. Details of who recommended the employee, age, employee began service, details of referees. So you get a a vast amount of information. Um, In this, this is just one railway company, and obviously it's a fairly small railway company, but you you find it elsewhere as well. Now, the the actual uh, North London line itself. A hundred years ago, I, I feel sure this isn't the case now, but they were quite keen on recruiting men who are seen as being of good character. And one test of good character was service in the army, in particular pensionable service in the army. So these records will record the fact that someone was in the army and had been discharged a pension. So if, if you find someone who was employed by that particular company or another company which employed similar staff on a similar basis, then that will t- obviously tie in with our, our service records here for soldiers discharged pension in W.O. 97. And this is very big in the pre-First World War period. Again, when you're looking at addresses which it gives there, that will tie in with the 1911 census returns which are going to be made available uh, fairly soon within the foreseeable future. Another smaller railway company, the Hull and Selby Railway Company, in existence for about forty years and this is in Rail three one five. You get this is a staff register, records name, occupation, rates of pay per annum. So for many of you this is the sort of information you'll be coming across. Just going back to the Great Western Railway, this is just well this could have been elsewhere, in fact it, it in point of fact it is isn't the Great Western Railway, the register of accidents and related records. Many of the railway companies had accident registers which recorded often very serious accidents but sometimes, well, you know, rather trivial accidents in a way, but presumably they weren't trivial to the people at the time. But they, uh, so you can get things like details of someone who cut their finger or walked into a door. But the point of, the point of interest from a, a genealogical point of view is the fact that they do list someone's name, and again, you get confirmation that they worked for a particular company at a particular time. And say, this, so this is the Great Western Railway. Uh, details of accidents at stations on a day-by-day basis example on 26th of March 1934 Mr. May fell on the platform at Cardiff now this oddly enough doesn't actually specify whether Mr. May was a member of staff or was was a passenger Uh, I suspect he was a member of staff he was on the platform and on the 27th of March Miss Jones sprained her ankle at Strata Florida in Wales and that's obviously fairly recent as well Rail 92, Cambrian Railways Company, a staff register for the locomotives department, recording occupations, where at present employed, wages advanced, and remarks about the individuals, e.g. Thomas Jones, who was a coalman born September 2nd, 1852, and who entered the service October the 18th, 1900, on three shillings per day. Those are the sort of, that's the sort of information you might find on an initial search, um, in relation to the smaller railway companies. I'll give you confirmation that someone is working for the co- a company at a particular time. Of course, search doesn't stop there. Partly because you get, you get different records within different companies, you get registers of drivers, registers of engineers, of cleaners, etc. So that should just be the starting point and you, you never know what you might find later on. As I said, rail 529, which I mentioned just earlier on, North London Railway, that's just one example where you do get a lot of information about people. But it occurs elsewhere as well. I thought I'd talk a bit about railway accidents. Researchers interested in the career of an individual railway employee should consult Rail 105.3. Now, there are other record series you could look at as well, Ministry of Transport Records, but Rail 105.3 in particular is the one to consult, especially when they think or know that the person whom they are interested was involved in an accident. And what happened from the 1840s onwards was that reports were prepared, nearly always by ex-military men, into the details of all accidents which were reported at the time. The reports were prepared, submitted to the Board of Trade, and were then submitted to Parliament. So one thing about the Victorians is is that they were meticulous at their record-keeping. They actually did keep very good records, and they were certainly aware of the hazards of railways, and they they could hardly not be aware of it. But I I suppose you could say that. (laughs) The, the, the still, still applies now as well they didn't necessarily learn their lessons from the, the accidents themselves so you submitted the reports and then a few years down the line you'll find the same accidents happening again and many of the railway companies in the early days, passengers were locked in, they couldn't get out because they thought if they could get out they'd, they'd try and get out while the train was moving so when the train crashed of course they were trapped inside it which led to, well, quite a few casualties and Let's so say these reports were submitted to the Board of Trade and then submitted to Parliament and they list, See, they're called accidents and they sometimes list the fatalities, list the names of the passengers who died and, and the crew as well. And especially if the crew or, or the driver or the signalman or whatever was held to be culpable. And I mean, I saw one accident in, um, in Ireland in 1851 and it said 12 people had died and they said, it is my melancholy duty to record the details of this accident, which I trust will never occur again. Because they they thought, you know, obviously uh, slightly ambitiously, that they, they, these these would never happen again. That they, their uh, lessons would be learned, but they weren't necessarily. And of course, you get here's an example of a railway accident report. Later on, you get all the, the big accidents. Um, you get all the big accidents recorded as well. Like the there's a famous one, 1865. Which, uh, at Staplehurst, which Charles Dickens was involved in, as a fortunate and later on in during the First World War, you'll find a, a very long report on the on the disaster at Quinton's Hill near Gretna Green, when two hundred twenty-seven died, mostly soldiers on the way to the front, and that's the worst ever accident in this country. And again, you in that particular report, the, uh, the I think the, the railway staff involved were convicted. Uh, but quite often it wasn't really their fault. I mean, all sorts of reasons explain why why these things happened. You see, you get a very good description of what happened here. Um, the you get the name of the the, the person as well. The uh, in this in this case, he had a signalman, it was called Reuben Johnson. His his involvement in the accident or his level of culpability. But you you, you won't get. Quite often you'll see reports on. Um, on accidents which had nothing to do with staff involved. Mm. In, in the early days, the railways, you had lots of, you had these excursions to places like Blackpool uh, for day trips in the summer, and people crowded onto these trains, and not because they necessarily didn't want to pay the fares, but they wanted to, they wanted to get to wherever they were going, so they actually got onto the top of the trains as well, and, and of course then they were knocked off when they went under a bridge, and reports would be prepared on that as well this case here, of six to seven hundred passengers who are travelling in the excursion train, one child seven years of age, riding a slew carriage, was killed instantly by a shot, and nine others have since complained of injury. None of the servants companies suffered, except that the guard of the leading van was slightly shaken. It was a slightly melancholy subject, but if you did have an ancestor who works on the railways, it's sort of worthwhile checking these reports, A, to have an idea of what sort of conditions he is working under, because if these accidents were happening at the time, but also to see if they do record um, information about him. That's the second page, yeah, so Reuben Johnson who does duty in the cabin above referred to, receives notice on the 16th of July to, of the excursion train from Crewe to Liverpool on the 17th of July etc. He gives the name of the porter, John Cheshire, etc. Uh, divided responsibility and separate control in such a case are inseparable from constant danger. So the, the, these chaps, like Mr. Tyler here, I think it was Colonel Tyler, they, they were aware of the, of the responsibilities these men had, but they would certainly be quite willing to assign blame where it felt appropriate to assign it. These record, the railway accidents have partly been catalogued, This one, one of the projects we're involved in at the moment, again, you're getting detail, you we record details of the accidents, you can search these on our catalogue, where the accident occurred, the name of the railway company, the date of the accident, and these are the reports which were submitted to Parliament. Another area to consider ex- exploiting, if you like, are railway staff magazines. Now, these aren't actually public records as such, but they ended up being transferred over to us, or have been transferred over to us, and copies are kept elsewhere as well, like at the National Maritime Museum. but we've, well, we've got a very good selection of railway staff magazines, from the 1840s right up to the 1960s and 1970s. In the 1840s, they often were sort of, uh, not amateurish, but they, they, they were put together by, partly by enthusiasts who worked on the railways. So you get sort of cartoons and drawings and uh, impressions of other members of staff and the public inside them, which are rather entertaining. Later on though, well, and certainly by the First World War, a lot earlier, you, they're, they're very professionally produced. And what you get here is uh, details of people who are employed and when they left, and sometimes in this case here, for example, James Shillito, died on holiday in Scarborough. He had he retired a few years earlier in 1904. This is dated 1915, yeah, 1914, sorry, 1914. Quite often when someone has been employed by the railway so many years, he will get a very handsome tribute to that person Give him a, like in this case here well, he, he actually had died as well Robert Brownwig uh, who was accidentally killed at that station on night of 30, July 31st Mr Brownwig was born on August 28th 1848 and joined the service at Newcastle give a complete outline of his career and well, uh, there's a little point there it's August 1914 the war just started in view of present events it may be interesting to recall the articles on our railway in time of war and ambulance work during wartime, which appeared in the March 1912 and August 1913 issues, respectively. So, obviously, the railways had anticipated the war starting. Well, they're, they're, they're kept here. and They all have the prefix Z-P-E-R. So, if, the, if you're looking for a particular... It really depends what rail company you're looking for. But you could just put in... Well, down under Z-P-E-R and put in the name of the company on the catalogue, like London and Brighton, for example or you could just put down periodical or magazine, such as is quite good at picking up all the obvious hints. But if you, if you put the ZPI, it'll bring you links to all the Royal SAF magazines. So they're, they're not gonna be available online. You need to order up the original records. And they're often printed in very sort of small scripts. You have to sort of look through them all. But at the end, I promise you, you'll get huge chunks of uh, information about individuals when they joined. Sometimes, sometimes someone's practical jokes in and things like that. So, but they're, they're quite entertaining to read. Finding someone who worked on the railways overseas. Little information is held on railway staff working overseas, either those temporarily seconded from a British railway, from British, British railways, or those permanently settled abroad. Occasional reference to individuals individuals may be found amongst the records of the colonial dominions or foreign offices. The best period for finding such career information is in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. This was a time of general retrenchment in the colonial service and appeals against being laid off for compensation often include career details. There is no specific railway staff index to the material, however, so searches will be speculative and time consuming. So you, you, you might find material. You you never know. I mean in India the, the British were hugely involved in the building of the railways in India. But we wouldn't have a great deal here relating to that. You need to contact the India office up in the British Library. The British were certainly heavily involved in the building of railways in South America. Well, I haven't mentioned this on the slides here, but if, if, for example, you had an ancestor who went out to work on any of the railways in South South America, you could search on ancestors on board, because our passenger lists are being uh, digitised and made available online, and so you could find evidence that he went out there to work for a particular railway company. In Argentina, the, the, the railways were almost exclusively owned by the British, Built by the British all over the whole country. And when they were nationalized in 1947, the government of General Peron rather overcompensated the, the British rail owners who then took the money and run. And, and, then the, and the railways never recovered, really. There's only one railway line in Argentina now. But they went down there and they were put inside um, little stations on the Pampas all by themselves and just left there to take food and goods up to Buenos Aires so, and then onto Europe after that. So in South America, they were heavily involved in the, um, in, in, in the running of the railways, and you might find information relating to people seeking compensation, say, doing, or after the Second World War when the railways were nationalised over there. But you aren't going to find a great deal on individual employees, and generally speaking, if you're looking at railways overseas, it's often a good idea to contact sources in those countries or, say, the India Office Library. Again, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of it, there's a huge n- <laughs> If anyone's got a computer, if you just put railways in, I, I don't know how many millions of hits you're going to get, but there's a vast quantity of information you can find on individual railway ancestors, or, or, or individual railway companies, on branch lines, on this certainly other connections with railways in this country and abroad. So it's always a good idea to look around and see what you can find. uk is quite a good one. Um, if you it might have detected a slight interest on my part in South American railways, that's Covered by latin the and the London uh, North Western Railway Society.org.uk. There's just a huge number of different ones you could contact. And I wouldn't actually so recommend, I'm sure most of them are pretty good, but you could uh, surf around and see what turns up, really. Uh, and you, you can join various organisations concerned, obviously, with preserving individual railways or branch lines or comes up. The Bluebell Railway is a uh, down in Sussex has is, is got quite a number of has got a quite a good website as well, a number of volunteers working for it as well. So, if you're interested in a particular company, search on the internet, see what you can find. Or, after having come here, first of all, of course, National Railway Museum in, in York. Anyone who's interested in railway should certainly go there. I went there last week. They are at the moment developing their archival collection there. I wouldn't say necessarily the National Railway Museum is the best place to go for initial uh, research into railway ancestry. Partly because if you did go there, they'd just tell you to come here. So, so it's, probably, it's, probably, it's probably best if you do start off here. But they have got various publications, books, articles, maps, plans, drawings in their archive collection, which they call their search engine. Which is <laughs> as well as of course bottles of engines themselves in there. So it's quite an impressive place to visit. So that wasn't a comprehensive introduction to railway records, but an indication of where you should go to try and find stuff on individuals employed by the railway companies, how you might find details on those particular railway companies. This event was recorded live on the thirtieth of September two thousand and eight at the National Archives Queue. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives, all rights reserved.